There it is. We are live. It is Stick to Hockey Live, episode number 69, and we are going to the goalie guru, Jason Martinez. It is the one and only from In Goal Magazine, at Kevin is In Goal on Twitter. Got to go to his website as well, ingoalmag.com. It is Kevin Woodley. Woody, how are you? Have to be nice on the episode number, right? Like, yeah. uh, I played beer league last night, and there was a guy on the other team that was wearing that jersey number, and sure enough, he was the guy that was running around doing stupid stuff. It's so predictable. <laughs> you leave it to any like donkey beer league team. There's always some, you know, some juvenile clown that's got that jersey on. A hundred percent. Like every time, as soon as you see that jersey, like it could be like old man hockey, and he'll be like the one guy who's underage out playing with the old men, but he's he's not actually good, but he's going a million miles an hour and trying to hit guys and slash guys. And every single time it's that jersey. It's hey, anyways, good to be on with you, buddy. I'm looking forward to catching up. That guy's always got like a half visor on, like looks got all tinted. Crazy. Tinted. Yeah. Yeah, the old OV tinted visor. That's great. Um, I wanted to get you on, and I know I've gotten a lot of messages from Stick to Hockey listeners over the last couple of uh, last period of time, a couple even couple months, to get Kevin on to talk about goaltending and talk about Carter Hart, talk about now Cal Pearson as well. The Flyers acquired in that three team trade with Provorov and Columbus and the LA Kings, and also about the goalie market. And there's a lot of rumors about Carter possibly being traded. So we have a ton to get to. Well, let's start first and foremost, you know, at this past season, because, you know, Torts comes in and he certainly provides a little bit more structure, um, a lot more responsibility when it comes to shot blocking. And I thought Carter had, a, you know, the raw numbers aren't there. Um, but if you watch the games, he was flat out dominant at points. He had stretches where he went six, eight games with over a 950 save percentage at times. Had a rough spot in the season, but I thought he rebounded well and, and hung in there mentally this season how would you kind of encapsulate the year for for Carter Hart um you know it's funny because I looked up his numbers right before they were coming to town which was mid-February right and then yep. basically the road trip started in Seattle before coming up to Vancouver which was you know that's the thing about the Kraken being here sort of a new road everything used to run through Alberta into Vancouver and now it's sort of sometimes those trips start in Seattle so up until that point I just went back and pulled them because I remember looking at those numbers and I'm like he's coming into town like Jason, he was he was inside the top ten. He was tied for ninth in adjusted save percentage at that point in the year. Um, you know, like uh, there were there were four guys that I think all were like plus one percent. You know, Alexander Georgiev, Tristan Jari at the time, uh, Logan Thompson, and Carter Hart. And like to me, that's a, that's that's that that's impressive, right? Like plus one percent on a team that. Yes, you're right. Uh, improved structure, expected save percentage was still three points below league average. So, you know, like the, the environment still, it's not like it was, you know, we're not talking about the 95 devils here. It got better, but still below league expected. And he was outperforming it by a significant margin. You talked about the start he got off to. Um, I guess what I would say, and now those dropped off by the end of the year, I think he finished at plus 0.4%, which is closer to like 21st, 22nd in the league. So those last couple of months, actually, if I remember correctly, kind of started on that road trip. Um, like the, things started to crater a little bit on that road trip, at, at least statistically. But hey, like like if I'm not mistaken, that this season was the most games he's played, right, in the National Correct. Hockey League level. So there's an adjustment period, and and the environment took a slight hit over those final, you know, like it it got a little bit worse over those last two months as well. Like he finished with an expected of 887. Uh, still outperformed it, like I said, to the tune of about 20th in the NHL, um, which isn't bad. But I think what you saw was longer stretches of better Carter, of, of the potential that 
I mean, hey, I'm biased. I've always believed in the kid uh, and believed in that potential as a goaltender. And so um, it was nice to see that for longer stretches. Like I said, the last, the last two months of the season were a little tougher. I'm assuming that some of the moves around the team, some of the environment around the team, like you hit a grind there when you're not in it uh, and you're playing teams that are, and it's really hard to sustain. But I think overall, like this was a positive step for him this season. And, um, you know, I'd like to think it bodes well for the future, especially like, like I said, that start that we saw from him uh, combined with, uh, like I said, like through mid-February, that's that's a good two-thirds of the season. And he's performing at a top 10 level. You'll take that. Yeah. And, and you know, I always say that, you know, a good team or a bad team will eventually grab the goaltender and kind of drag them to their level as well because it's, I mean, he had no run support. The team just struggled to score. And you mentioned how he got out of the gate. I mean, the first eight games, 6-0-2 record. He had a 946. He's raw. 946 save percentage in those first eight games. I mean, team wasn't scoring, but he was out there. And maybe that's kind of a window, Woody, into what he could be. Not that dominant, but that on a consistently good team with an environment that is is consistent in structure uh, seasonally for him to be able to really put up one of those monster statistical seasons from the raw numbers and the advanced. Yeah. He's, I mean, you know, when I look at their defensive profile, it's, you know, it's not bottom three in the league. And that's where I think you can really get dragged down. We saw that here in Vancouver, like Demko Vancouver went from a bottom third team to a bottom three team under Boudreaux for the first third of the season. And like, to me, that drop as much as it's just six or seven spots uh, amongst teams in the NHL, it was almost exponential. Like just, no predictability at all in front of them. Um, you know, the, Philly was sort of 23rd in, in five on five uh, high danger chances against, which, you know, again, that's bottom third, you know, in that 22, 23 range. Um, so certainly not a favorable defensive environment, but like you said, within that, you can have a little more predictability, a little more battle in front of your net, a little more sort of collapsing and, and some form of structure. So, uh, you know, I, I think, it's hard to forecast exactly what it would be behind a quote unquote better defensive team. Like, I think you actually need to get more granular than that. Like for example, like Carter's numbers breakaways, he was slightly below expected. Every other number is either even or better than expected last season, except for slot area Um, slot area, which, you know, encompasses a couple different types of chances, just clear slide in this, in the slot. So clean looks in the slot and odd man rushes clear, clear sighted where you got to look at it. The guy shoots, but he's in the slot area. Those are the only two areas. He, at the end of the season, he's about five or six goals below expected. On. That's the only number. And so when I look at that, like, I think, wow, like we're watching two teams in the cup final right now that guess what they've done to get to the cup final. They don't give up those types of chances, right? Like yeah, Sir, Sergei Bobrovsky, like everybody talks about what's happened this year. Well, I can tell you what's happening. Look at his numbers over the last couple of years. You know, everything is sort of between the face-off dots is where he's gotten absolutely chewed up since going to Florida. A lot of low shots over the pads, pop passes into that middle ice, um, and that's where he's been at times exposed, particularly on the glove side. Not shooting from the glove side, but plays to or from that side of the ice. Um, When was the last time you saw them give up those, right? Like, they just just haven't through a long portion of this playoff run. Uh, and, and screens as well, like an area where statistically over the last couple of years he struggled, like, and we're seeing it in the cup final. Take away his eyes, you got a chance. Don't let him see it, and he's still Bob, right? Yeah. Like, even on laterals, he's still Bob. Um, 
so that's where, you know, good defensive team, like you can have a good defensive team, but they still give up chances that maybe don't fit your goaltender's strengths. I think anybody that takes away sort of that, that slot area with Carter, the, the one area where he's been exposed a little bit, you're, you're, you're going to have a good fit, especially sort of that high mid slot area. Yeah. Um, let, let's just talk about environment real quick because, you know, I, I've gotten a lot of messages and tweets from people saying, well, well, you know, the goalie's got to lead the way it, they gave up the blah, 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 most goals in the league this year. And this guy's a better goalie than him because he had better numbers. And I remember a conversation I had, maybe it was even on Ingle, uh, with Robin Lehner when he said, when I was in the, the Islanders playing under behind Barry Trotz's team yeah. and he went to Chicago and he said, I played so much better goaltending in Chicago than I did with the Islanders and the numbers you go, what are you crazy? But playing behind a Barry Trotz team compared to that Chicago team, which gave up a ton off the rush, didn't protect the middle, slot line passes, the whole thing. But his game was, as the goalie feels it, was way better in Chicago, even though the raw results weren't. So talk about environment and explain it to people that environment doesn't just matter. It is of the utmost importance for a goaltender. Okay, so... The, the laner conversation, I actually remember having this kind of, and we had, we did have something along those lines at Ingle. A lot of it was at like comparing New York to Buffalo too. Um, you know, I can be on my game playing really well. And in New York, I think he said we would get an odd man rush once every two games, but in Buffalo, he would get three or four odd man rushes a game. It's like, even if I'm playing good, really on top of my game and feeling it, Odd man rushes are going to go in like two on ones. Like those, those, that, those are the types of chances that end up in the net. So if I see one every two games versus say three a game, like even if one of those three goes in, I'm actually still feeling good and playing well, but obviously the numbers are going to be totally different. So that's like a, it might be an oversimplification. I mean, obviously I remember when he talked about New York, like it goes so much more like the systems, uh, the way goalies rely on on systems and the predictability of of, of their players executing the systems in front of them. Uh, the examples I used to like from Robin were like it was screens. Like what side of a screen should I be on? Well, if I take the short side, which is your typical goalie solution, because the path for the puck into the net is always shortest and quickest from the short side of the net. It's got to travel further distance to go to the middle, and there tends to be more bodies in the middle. So if I've got a screen in front of me and i got to pick a side as a goalie, I pick short side. And now the player that's either fronting that screen or going out to the shooter, he needs to be in the middle lane. Like I, my job is this, his job is that. Yep. And if that puck goes to the middle, hopefully I have sight on it because I picked the side and I can establish a sight line and I can shift over. But also his job is to block that. Yep. And so when those things are on the same page and it's become increasingly hard because the offense has become so dynamic that, you know, everybody's scrambling around. So sticking within that, but when you're on the same page, your life as a goaltender is so much easier. Um, you know, I talked about Carter's plus 0.4 save percentage, uh, adjusted save percentage this year and how that, you know, it was as high as plus one top 10 in the NHL um, and plus four by the end year grades out around the twenties. I didn't even, I don't even look at his raw numbers. So I'm sort of scrambling here to look up his numbers versus say Stuart Skinner, another guy who's he trains with him this summer. So it's a perfect, perfect sort of comparison. Young guy coming up. He's a little behind Carter in terms of experience, but like Stuart Skinner is, is a finalist for the Calder trophy. 
I'm guessing his raw numbers are a lot better than Carter's. Again, I, I don't even look at those anymore. Yeah, yeah the, Carter ended up with a 907. Um, and Skinner in, was around 915, 914 uh, around that. Yeah, I'm looking it up now. Um, but y- you're right. And when people go, well, what the that's Edmonton? They can't defend. But in actuality, they, def- they did they defend on the regular season. Defended at a top five level when it came to give, giving up the, ma- the ones that matter the most as an analyst. And when I look at sort of some of the – uh, the fancy stats on clear side analytics, so to speak, uh, those high danger chances, five on five, Edmonton was a top five team. They were top yeah. three for a large chunk of the year. Stuart Skinner had one of the highest expected save percentages in the NHL. His adjusted numbers are actually slightly worse than Carter Hart's this season. Now, those numbers aren't perfect, but they give you a glimpse into what a goalie is facing. And trying to compare those two side by side just based on the raw save percentage – like it's, it's not even apples to oranges. It's a- apples to dolphins. I don't, like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't even know how you make, like it, it is so different. Right. So that's why we have these numbers. That's why we look at environment. It matters. It's not just, and again, they're not perfect. Um, Sergei Bobrovsky to go back to the example, as good as he was in the second and third round, he was actually below expected against the Boston Bruins. But if he doesn't stop Brad Marchand on a breakaway, I think it's game six that they want an overtime in the dying seconds of the third period. Beater, yeah. it, it's over, right? Like they're not still playing. He doesn't have a chance to go on that run. So the numbers aren't perfect. There are still moments within those numbers where you can make, you know, the quote unquote, the timely save exists, right? Like every save is time. Yeah. So Aiden's actually been, believe it or not, heading into the Very cup good. finals, Aiden's adjusted save percentage was actually better than Bob's. Now Bob yeah. was dragged down by that Boston series, but again, they're not perfect, especially in small samples, but they give us context that is very important, at least some concept of relativity when we ha- add that context that, that you just don't get in the raw numbers. Listen, like even the public analytics, and this isn't a criticism of the people behind it, they're freaking brilliant people, smarter than I will ever be than I ever was. And the stuff they do with the data is remarkable, but the data is limited. And one of the key things they rely on is location. Well, I mean, you're a goalie, Jason, so you get this. But for anyone else, so the closer you are to the net, the more likely it is to go in, basically, is, is what most of the location data tells us. Now, if we have 10 shots and Team A has 10 shots from, say, just above the top of the crease on the left side of the net, and Team A, nine of those 10, the puck was there and the goalie was already in position when that shot was taken. I'm stopping nine of 10 Yep. because if, if that puck is that close to the net and I'm in position and dropping a butterfly they're lit. Like you, I could take a camera behind the puck and point it at the net. You will not there. see there is yep. nothing. So that shot, if nine of the 10 are the goalies already setting in place by the time that shot is taken, like those are not high danger chances necessarily. If the other team doesn't make it high danger, the situation and how right. it unfolds now, an idea. If I'm facing the other face-off circle and that puck is passed to that same spot on nine out of ten, and that's obviously extreme, but even if it's five out of ten, now I have to gain rotation, completely turn my body 180 degrees on my skates, drop a leg, get a push. Good goalies are getting a leg there. Good goalies are, you know. A guy like Bob is not only getting a leg there and a pad sealed along the ice, but also a glove above it. Like they're going to get there on most of them, but there's net. 
And sometimes if there's a screen or a fake or whatever, they don't even get there and it's a tap in. My point is without the context of how many out of, of those shots from that location were a rebound sitting there with the goalie already in position or a straight line attack versus that lateral play or a puck off the right side that hit a leg and bounced to that spot before. The, I mean, rebounds are one thing, at least as a goalie, I can feel a rebound broken plays. If it hits a leg in front, I don't even feel that. Sometimes I don't see it. It goes to that guy wide open. I have no chance or very little chance. And so the added context of those environmental sort of factors, I just think, you know, evaluating goalies without them is frankly kind of useless. Like the raw numbers just don't have enough data in in them to make comparisons from team to team. Hell, even within the same team, quite often we see based on different starts and who gets what and what opponent and back-to-backs, we can see wide variances in expected save percentage, even on the same team. My favorite example is Lundqvist and Shesterkin when Igor finally came up. And that was when Lundqvist was actually still playing really well. Now, when they limited his minutes, his play dropped off a little bit. But it was, was fascinating. It was fasc- yeah, fascinating yeah. to see the difference in their expected environment. And if you, if you dug in and did a little bit of sort of the eye test part of it, you can actually see that Igor's ability to handle the puck contributed to it. Whereas Henrik, that was, I mean, there weren't many weaknesses in Henrik Lundqvist's game. Hall of Famer, first ballot every time for me, like one of the all-time greats. Um, but he didn't handle the puck. Like n- not only did he not handle it well, he just didn't get out and handle it very often. And so it was easier for teams to generate sustained four checks against the Rangers when he was in net. Igor went in, stopped the puck behind the net, quite often made a quick up or a quick pass. Like it's not the home run passes. It's the quick transition plays that get you out of your own end that counts the most. And Igor made those really well. And so his environment, you know, that season was significantly easier. And I don't think it was, oh, the Rangers buckling down in front of the rookie. A large part of it was Igor's ability to transition the puck out of their own end. So again, even on the same team, we can see differences in defensive environment. So by God, you know, different conference, different team, different personnel, different systems, um, you're going to see massive differences. And so looking at Carter's 907 and, for example, Stewart's whatever we said, 915, and saying Stewart was better, like that's just not – it's just not a fair assessment. Yeah. It's, um, it, you know, the thing is, too, with a guy like Shesterkin, I remember the Flyers playing him and seeing how he handles the puck. It then changes how you have to attack the zone, where you dump the puck your choice whether to dump a puck because he can start a breakout with a on the backhand or the forehand with a, a quick five or seven foot pass. You got to keep the puck away from him because they're just going the other way. It becomes a wasted rush opportunity. And then yeah. maybe you try and carry the puck into the zone with possession and that gets turned over above the, the top of the circle. And now you have the stress coming the other way. So there's so many low to high plays like that. that that's the, the goalie nightmare for me. I'm looking this way. And I don't know where player X is moving this way. And if he comes out and it's a one-time shot, I'm taking away the lower third and he's got to elevate, but I, I, I'm at more at their mercy at that, at that situation. Yeah. Interestingly enough, low high plays are one of the few things that Igor struggled with this year. It was one of the big yep. differences the game teams were able to attack him low high. And it was one of the few areas where there was a consistent pattern. There were teams were having success at least until late in the season when he started to sort of find his legs. And you know, again, like when we talk about this stuff, the analytics can provide us clues as to where we see strengths and weaknesses. And then you go in and you match it to the eye test. You do the work. I click one button and I can see, you know, like the, the numbers on Carter's slot area, um, you know, 108 chances, 14 goals, five below expected. I click the button. I can look at all 108, cha- 108 chances or, or 14 goals and see if I can identify trends. That's what goalie coaches do. Let's see 
okay, here's something where we're getting burned on. Is this systems? Is this us? If we can't change the systems, do we need to change how we're playing it? Yeah. Uh, or can we adjust a little bit of both to help each other out better? Oh, and there's always a give and take. Like it's a constant yin yang. Like, Evolving, hey, yeah. if we take this away, we're going to give that up instead. Is yeah. our goalie better equipped to solve that than rather than us continuing to give this up, this or that, right? There's always that flow. There's give and take in every decision a goalie makes, every save execution decision, every depth decision, um, and so much of it. I guess last point on environment. And, and I'm going to plug in goldmag.com on this one. One of the things we do is something called pro reads. And it's awesome. where we sit and we watch video with the NHL goalies and they break down why they chose this depth, why they chose this save selection, uh, what type of movement patterns they have in terms of the way they're moving around their crease based on what's coming at them. Right-handed shot with a one-time option off the pass or is the puck carrier on his strong side or his weak side? Like, uh, where's my, so all those breakdowns, like the first time I did it, and I'm 20 years into this, uh, was with Carrie price and like literally mushroom clouds going off in my head. Cause I thought I understood the amount of information that a goalie processes in real time. And Carrie was picking out details that I never even thought to look for. Yeah, and that's you were on the Commodore 64. He was on like the biggest computer in the world. Yeah. My computer doesn't even plug in anymore. Yeah. So, um, I was, I was amazed. And, and I knew we had something like, Hey, like this is great for kids to see. Those are the details you need to seek out in order to sort of, you know, find this is how they read the game. These are the things you got to look for. And one of the biggest surprises wasn't just the amount of detail, but over the, we've done, we've done close to 200 of these now. Um, and by the way, they're all online at ingolmag.com. Uh, shameless plug. But the thing that, really blew me away over the the two and a half years we've been doing this or almost three years we've been doing this is how often it wasn't just or wasn't even mostly about what these attacking teams tendencies were going to be whether it was a pre-scout or seeing a guy for years or again what hand he was or where he was on the ice it was about trusting where your what your defense was doing I've got this because my guy's got that and I trust him to have that so I can take a little more ice here because I know the back door is covered is a simplistic example. And again, another example of why this structure and the defensive play matters. It's not just about what you give up. It's about, is it what the goalie expected you to give up? Vegas was, was, was really sort of a great example of this for me with flurry uh, when they had flurry and laner that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, so I can't remember, was that Pete DeBoer there? Um, they would give up a lot of high danger. So the goalie numbers were really good and they were full value for it. But what the goalies could trust is the high danger was going to come from certain situations and from certain spots on the ice. So they could isolate it. They didn't have to worry about the high danger. Like, bam, I push out to this high danger chance in the middle of the slot, but that guy's got three options. They could just focus in on the one option. Exactly. And and trust that that's all they had to worry about. And by doing so you're going to have, even against high danger chances, you're going to have more success because you're not having to worry about his high danger chances and the two other high danger chances behind you, he might pass to. And so the more a goalie can trust in that execution of a system that fits their game, the better off they're going to be, which again, none of that shows up in the raw data. And it's conversely too. It's if that structure is not there, you can't trust the back door 
now you start loading your left leg to lean and that causes you problems as well <laughs> as soon as you cheat in this league you're dead like it, dead. you know it's yeah. i always used to use the example when back in the day when the oilers were actually a bad defensive team and they were chewing up and spitting out goaltenders who would then go elsewhere and have success it's like the most simplest example i can give is like if a guy's coming down and he's got a backdoor pass option but you're supposed to stay on the shooter because that you, you got somebody supposed to cover that back door. Yeah, and take it, away the pass. It gets through nine straight times. And you're doing your job, but the puck's in the net nine times. It's not your fault. You're going to start to cheat. And yep. as soon as you cheat and lean to that backdoor chance, at this level, if the guy with the puck has time and space, he's taking advantage and shooting short side on you. Like, it's simplistic. It's oversimplistic. It's the type of battle that goalies sort of face. And, you know, when things really get bad is when the goalie can't trust the environment. And the players no longer trust the goalie because yeah. now they're going out of what they're supposed to be doing to try and help the goalie. Like their intentions are good. They start chasing plays and trying to do too much because they're trying to actually help their goaltender. And pretty soon everybody is trying to do everybody else's job and nobody is doing their own. And, and <laughs> there's been, there's been a lot of examples of this. And yep. once that snowball gets going downhill and building and getting bigger and bigger, there's been a few cases, you know, over the years where it's like, you know, I've said, I don't know that this can be fixed with all the personnel in place and either, and, and usually the goalie's got to move. Actually, you guys had that in Philly with, with Steve Mason when he Steve arrived Mason. there. That's yep. what had happened. And Steve Mason took, like Jeff Reese deserves a ton of credit for all the help he gave Steve Mason once he arrived there. I think he, he helped him solve a lot of things. But Mason had made strides in his game in Columbus but it was never going to matter in Columbus because the team in front of him had lost that trust. And so anytime he was in net, everybody was out there trying to do everybody else's job and nobody and was not doing their own. Mistake. Yeah. And that included Steve, like, because so yep. the defensemen are out there trying to protect Steve by getting out of their lanes and that he can't trust them to be where they are. Like it's, it's just, man, that snowball is really tough to stop. Yeah. I always use the real world example, not this past season, the season before the Flyers played the Bruins and Carter got beat three times in the game. It, on the back door on his blocker side. The guy wasn't covered, three goals. The the It was actually the fifth goal of the game that he gave up was high glove from Brad Marchand with a backdoor option. Why? Because he was leaning. And it just it just beat him, you know? And it's because he, he lost the trust that that coverage was there. Um, let me, I got this question that comes in from Tim Tobin uh, on Twitter, at Tobinator, good, uh, good hockey guy. He said, I'd love to hear more on guys in the RVH and getting sniped high and why we're seeing more bank shot goals from the RBH position. Are they still considered bad goals? Seems like some are just saying it's more of a great shot over a bad goal. Now, RBH, obviously, the thing about RBH for me, Kev, is this, is a lot of people go, wow, why is the goalie down there? Well, you don't question it when a, a ton of saves look routine because of the choice of save selection of an RBH. You do have those one out of 100 where they – you know, find the little window up there uh, next to the head. A lot of times that's because the goalie's not properly rotated. The post play is not right. The execution of the RBH isn't there. But answer Tim's question. Okay, so the bank shot one, actually, I need to see some examples, to be honest with you. Because the whole point of an RBH is if you're properly sealed, it, you shouldn't be able to bank it off you. Where you see pucks, and I'm assuming when he says bank shot, he means banked off of the goaltender. Yeah. Um, a properly executed... 
a properly executed story reverse is prop you know the whole idea is here you're, you're limiting that it's when you get caught with a skate outside the post um you know Marc andre fleury was the prime example of this when he was in pittsburgh and he would start to struggle he would chase plays and get over aggressive and he was constantly outside his post and that's i think it was an islander series in particular they might have banked like two or three off his ass because he was outside his post he didn't He's have a seal yeah and when mike bales taught him reverse a lot of that ended, right? Because it gave him an anchor, a point he could go back to where um, he had coverage short side. He could move in and out of it. He didn't feel immobile, which is what the old traditional VH used to do. Guys felt locked into it. You had coverage in the middle of the net as well as a seal on the post, and you weren't exposed to the bank shots. In terms of getting caught snipe short side high, um, hey, like like there's times when some of those shots – you, you know, you can look at him and be like, okay, so how would you like him to play this? If he squares up in a butterfly and drops, because from that range, it's probably a blocking butterfly anyways. Yep. You're, it's not a reaction zone. Yep. It's probably still going over his shoulder, right? Like, so there, there are times when it's like, there are times where you just have to tip your cap and say, yep. hey, that's a hell of a shot. Um, but there are also times where I think I see the hashtag, I always say it's the hashtag, it's RVH fail. We see it on the internet every time one of those goals go in and and sometimes I, I think it's important to look at the execution and say, okay, was this an RVH fail or was this a hashtag failed RVH yeah. timing execution? Uh, you, you know, properly executed that inside leg should be into the ice at an angle that allows you to use it to push up that short side shoulder. So you're not, maybe you're not reacting with your hands, but you can still react by driving that shoulder right. up to the top of the net yeah. using that inside anchor. A lot of guys, and it amazes me how many at the NHL level do this, they allow that, that inside leg, the one that's sort of along the goal line, to just sort of drift back into the net rather than keeping it up at like a 30-degree angle relative to the goal line. And, and they did like you, it. Yep. Yeah, and, 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 and they disengage it. Well, mm-hmm. that I mean, that's your connection to the ice. That's your ability to drive up into the top of the net that leg being anchored and solid and so again to me that's a failure of execution sometimes you're just in it at the wrong time or in it too often and you give that guys the option and you can't react and push up again to me that's a failed execution you're using it at a time when maybe it's not the right save selection it was designed to be something from dead angles you know when anytime you see it and the pucks up in the zone sort of above the top of the circle or up to the Maybe the face-off thought. A lot of guys will sit in it too long when it's along the wall, and they'll be exposed because it pucks at the hash mark. Well, that's not a dead angle anymore, and nope. you're in a dead angle save execution. Especially so as you move to the middle a little bit. Yeah, hundred percent. And so, yeah, Felix Sanchez um, suffered from that. He, he would stay in it too long and get beat high glove because there was just no way he was going to be able to react to get get his hands up. And the, the you know the dead angle is basically from the far post. Uh, ac- across the low hash mark but as soon as it starts to come up towards a, a little bit the dead angle's over you got to get out of it and you got to regain your edges yeah and some guys would say the dead angle is like from the post to the you know the bottom of the face-off circle like it's even yeah. more sort yeah, of that's how the line comes a across sharp angle. yeah yep. so um the other the other part of this though is um we're not like we've seen other techniques evolve situation specific um the toughest one is off the rush Right. Like a guy comes down the wing with speed. He's outside the coverage and he gets down into that dead angle area. Now, if you go into reverse and you don't have that ability to drive, actually two things. Let's, let's, I'm going to rewind before we get to that situation. You don't have to execute a reverse with passive hands. 
And some guys just they, they put that shoulder inside the post, and now that limits where their arm is because they've dropped it for the short side coverage. It, they've treated it like a pure block. Watch Bob. Like watch Bob mm-hmm. keep that hand up. Like how many times have we we've seen shooters in this series look for that and throughout these playoffs look for that shot because they see he's down in reverse, but he's got the glove up and they just yep. shoot it right into an active forward. Yeah. Now, um, if it gets into a, an area where he can't react from that, that glove is also difficult. If you've got it up high, you're taking away top corner, but that becomes a long move to transition it down to bottom. So, you know, it's recognizing coverage. If he's got that glove up high, you want to shoot just sort of off his knee, off his hip and try and expose the hole that he's created there. Mm-hmm. But you can, yep. yeah, you can play at active hands. Guys have active. I watch Demko work it. He keeps that blocker active all the time. So then we get into the situation off the rush that I was just talking about. So if you reverse and you're inside your post and that guy's coming down with speed off the off the wing, gets to the bottom of the circle, you drop into reverse and you've you've given up short side high. I understand the criticism, but if you square up on him in a butterfly. And he pump fakes you from there. You're now think about this. You are facing the boards. You have dropped into a butterfly facing the right boards, for example. And he's going to go with speed on a wrap. And the wraps always look terrible. But the amount of rotation, we talked about cross ice plays and slot line plays and how much you have to turn. Yeah. Like you literally have to get your whole body from facing the right boards back to the left post. That is a massive rotation for a goaltender. And so we've seen new techniques develop. One's called the Panda where it's an overlap, but instead of squaring up to the shooter, you have, you have enough coverage. You can actually flatten it out along the goal line. So you're still in a butterfly with the, with the skate outside the post, what we call an overlap. Um, But instead of facing the shooter, as he comes down there, you've sort of cheated. You've hedged yourself into the middle so that if he does wrap, it, it's an easier push. You don't have the big rotation. And you trust your coverage that you're still able to react to anything short side high. Um, your risk there is you're outside your net, so you could get bank shot if you do it too often and it, it becomes targetable. Um, that's why it's called the panda, because the idea is when you execute this, you want to have your ass up against that post to try and you know seal that and, and prevent that bank shot. And one of the goalie coaches, when he first saw them playing with it, it was Dustin wolf with uh, calgary wranglers thomas spear who's now with the san jose sharks as their head goalie coach was the guy in the ahl then and the director of goaltending saw it and they were trying to come up with a name for it and rather than uh overlap uh flat overlap which actually another goalie coach had written about it in 2014 for in goal the same concept with that type of name they called it the panda because it looked like a panda with its rubbing its butt against the bamboo and yeah so it caught on a little faster because it's marketing right it's all about marketing good name um but again just another example of there are a lot of different ways to do this so each and every failure sometimes it's it's the execution i rarely think it's the actual position itself that failed like uh, I wish I could fi- find really quickly the in Clark quote about the reverse. Like the idea, the just stand up crowd. It's just, hey, listen, there are times you can be more patient and up on your feet. And there are certainly some guys in lingering it too much and they'll be better on their feet. But the idea that we would just solve it all by just standing up is so patently absurd. Yeah. And the way he put it is no position in the history of goaltending has allowed us to connect our posts in and out to our movements uh, as dynamically as this, to have the short side tail. Because that's the other thing. 
the whole thing was designed to get the short side seal, but also put your body in the net. Because up till that point, you either butterflied or you did a traditional VH, which is the short side pad up against the post and the backside yep. down along the Now Michael Layton got beat in game six. Think about the coverage, though. Oh, like, so many holes. Your body is, a, but your body's outside the net. Yeah. Right? Like, so your, your body is on the post. The only thing covering the middle of the net, so that's fine for the it's shooter. Down leg. <laughs> is your down leg. Yeah. Whereas a reverse, think our whole torso is actually in the space. Our yeah. inside leg is in the space. And More what's center the, mass. What's the biggest increase in offense in the National Hockey League over the last five years, courtesy of Stephen Valaket and Clearside Analytics? Oh, slot line passes, cross ice passes. Low slot line, below the hash yep. marks. Yep. And it's not directly to the tap-ins. It's off skates, it's off legs, it's broken plays. Everything that those plays generate – nothing has increased more. I think they're up 41% is his number over the last five years since 2018. That is the biggest increase in offense in the National Hockey League. The reverse connects those things. They allow you to have short side coverage and net coverage on the pucks that sift through the middle. And if you're good at it, you can move well. You can, you can execute both by dynamic save short side, but also dynamic movements that allow you to get out of it explosively and powerfully. Um, pop proper like recovery and all those things. I'm going to go to pro reads again, Ingles pro reads. I, I haven't gotten to this. We spent 45 minutes with Demko while he was injured. Some of the best pro reads we've had, we're about I think six or seven into them. And we're just getting into, I, I need to highlight this for your audience. Well, maybe I, maybe I even post it today. He's got a bunch of saves and this is for the just stand up crowd. Their backdoor passes tap-ins and he gets there. Why? Because he was in a reverse to start with. And that gave him access to a quick shift. Like you said, body was in the net and it was a quick movement and he was there. If he's standing up square to that puck on the far wall, no chance. there's no way he gets that pad down, gets that rotation and makes that push. So there are a lot of saves. Roberto Luongo used to say this. Yeah. Everybody criticizes when I get beat short side high in reverse and the internet says hashtag RVH fail. Nobody notices the 15 saves I made because of the reverse that I wasn't making before I added it to my game. And that's why it's there, folks. Yeah, yeah. And they look almost routine. It's like a guy slamming it into your pad on the post. And they, and they didn't used to be routine before we developed this. Oh, your, in this your feet. You're dead oh, in your feet. Yeah. I, I got tired the other day and, and was too tired to execute reverse. And I just stood up and a play went right there. And it was a guy who played at a really high level. And I'm like, oh, crap. Should I? I'm, I'm I'm already out. Should, should I should I butterfly on him? I should have been in a reverse. And he slammed it right through where my short side pad would have been, off the backside pad between my legs and in. It's like I think people forget how often those goals used to go in on the just stand up goalies. How much time more time do you have? I have two more questions for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're good, buddy. We're good. Okay. Okay. Um, Zach Anderson tweeted and he said, uh, he said, I'll start with the most obvious question for me. Uh, would he be willing to move on from Hart? Uh, and is he a replaceable asset or one that you part with at your own risk from a play style and ability standpoint? Now he's 24 years old. He's got one more year on his contract. He's an RFA. We have to consider these elements. And we also have to consider the element, Woody, of the fact that, you know, in today's NHL, it, are there the, a lot of the franchise goaltenders, you know, you look at Shisterkin, he's a franchise goaltender. It's a you short look list. at, yeah, it's, it, it seems like it's shorter than it's ever been. Um, and a lot of that is what you talked about happened in 17, 18, really with the Penguins who started it with those slot line passes and everything. It's kind of, you know, goaltending is trying to catch up still in elements of that. And they're, they've done a good job in some areas, but I mean, Hellebuck is a franchise goaltender. So is Hart a replaceable asset? I see. I hesitate to say he's a replace at the end of the day. 
outside of a handful of names, you can probably find, I, you know what? I'm going to answer it this way. This is me sitting on the fence so much. My ass hurts. Talk about the Panda. Um, there's, and I've had this conversation with goalie coaches, some of the best goalie coaches in the game, some of the best goalie coaches in the history of the game. We'll give you an elite number one goaltender. You can pick from three things, three great centers down the middle, an exceptional top four or an elite number one goaltender. What are you taking? All of them are going to say, give me that elite top four on defense and I'll build you a goaltender that can win. And I think that the gap between the top and the bottom of the league and even the next bunch of guys that are sitting in the minor leagues, look at what Alex Lyon did for the Florida Panthers, has shrunk so much. That gap is so much smaller. And yes, there are some at the – and even at that elite level, it's not just their ability to play at that level – it's the consistency. And we saw that dip for Shesterkin this year. The yeah. expectations that came with having a, you know, frankly, a historically good season last year. And what happens with expectations? When you don't meet them, you try harder. What happens when you try harder? You dig into your edges, you get a little lower and wider in your stance. Never, it's like golf and goaltending. You can't try harder. And until he narrowed his stance back up down the stretch, he wasn't the same Igor. So maintaining it, which is why Vasilevsky is still my number one goalie in the world, the hat, you know, quote unquote, because He's done it for so long at such a high level. That's really hard. The part that would scare me if I'm the Flyers, but moving on from Carter Hart is she's showing signs of that. Now there's been a process of, you know, trusting his game and his game has continued to develop. And like I said, top 10 for two thirds of a season last year, it looked like there were strides there. There were so many more frequent signs of that Carter Hart that we saw at the beginning of his career. I still think he has the upside to be one of those guys for several seasons, one of those, you know, number one goalies. So that's the risk. At the end of the day, though, if it's wasted behind a team, like I don't think there's any goalies that can save a bad team. Like, I, no. like again, like to a certain degree, like Demko had a damn near historically good season himself two years ago for the Vancouver Canucks, a, a team that profiled defensively where the Flyers were last year. Still wasn't enough to get them in the playoffs, right? Like, you know, UC Saros is stopping bullets in his teeth, should be a Vesna finalist again this year. But if you don't have the team in front of him, so, it, it, you know, I think that until you have – if you if you can build that team, you can find a goalie. I, I, I hate to say replaceable because it makes them seem disposable. Yeah. Um, but I'd be scared about – not everyone has that same level of upside. Now, I'm not, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not sure you need that same level um, and it's hard to find the guys that are at the Shesterkin level. But, um, you know, it's easier to find sort of that middle pack guy that if you put him behind a great defensive team, he's going to give the, you the results you need to win. Yeah, I'd just plus. be scared of, of losing the risk of – because I still see that in him. I still see that yeah. elite, that, that top 10 performance capability in him. Return for goalies, you know, because everybody says, oh, I'll trade hard if we can get a quote-unquote haul. You know, trading that's goalies, not you coming. It's that. not coming. You don't no, get a, it. You don't get the return, do you? No, I mean that's the thing. Like it's a, it's a depreciated asset because of that depth and because of the unpredictability of it, right? Like nobody wants to give term. Nobody wants it. You know, like I would, Patch I would face. avoid term um, <laughs> with goaltenders. Uh, I would go short term as often as I could, unless I had an Igor Shosturkin or an Andre Vasilevsky. The game changes, right? Like the game changes. Matt Murray didn't forget how to stop pucks. The way he stopped pucks when he won back-to-back cups doesn't work in the NHL anymore, in part because everybody started copying how the Penguins created offense. 
Now, Max adjusted his game a little bit, and I still think there's a goalie there because um, that process takes time to play out. And if when he's healthy, he's produced some good results. But the game changes too much to sort of, you know, like to say that this style of goaltending now, somebody asked me in another podcast, who's going to be the best goal in the NHL in 2030. I'm like, man, like the best goal in the NHL tw- in 2030 might not even look like what we consider great goaltending now because the game changes so much, right? Like UC yeah. Saros is a guy who probably doesn't even get drafted at his size, but I think he's one of the best. He's a guy I have on that list with Igor Shesterkin and Andre Vasilevsky. Yeah. There's like six of them. Yeah. I, I see. I think Carter still has that in him. But again, I'm biased. I've seen the kid at POE camps. I just, I, you know, watched him in the, at, at, in juniors. And, um, you know, I just, I, I, there's some, there's something, I've always thought there was something special there. And I still think, you know, as a goalie, there are things he does that, that are at such a level and ahead of the curve, at, you know, at such a level that uh, I still see that potential there. And I'd be worried about it, you know, walking from it. But that said, you know, especially that, here, <laughs> there's a big list of guys that if you can put a, you can put a, uh, put a good team in front of them. They're going to give you just that, you know, it's all you need is just a little bit above expected. And if they get on a heater in the playoffs, there you go. Yeah. Um, last thing for you. Um, Cal Peterson was acquired in the deal. Uh, 28 years of age, had a good start to his career. His first 54 games in a nine seventeen. Uh, but the wheels have fallen off the wagon, played only 10 games in the NHL this past year. Is he salvageable uh, at this point? I know you were high on him before and I know the Kings were, and uh, he was the next one for them to take over the crease, but it hasn't worked out. Yeah, Changes adjusted, certainly needed yeah, there. Yeah, early on, his adjusted numbers were really good. He had that breakout season that got him that contract, and I actually he made me look really good because in a small sample the year before, like he was the guy that when I was asked, you know, I do a thing annually on Sirius, and he sort of asked me, "Who's your breakout candidate this year?" Um, and I pegged him, and he and he did. He just didn't play a ton because Quick was there, and I thought that was the start of great things for for Cal Peterson because the underlying numbers indicated that was coming. And when you looked at the eye test, you know, in a game that has become increasingly East West, like he's the way he holds edges and has patience on his skates, like all things that I would look at as attributes that are likely to succeed in this new NHL, he had them all. And, you know, I, there are times, and this comes from other people that have watched him closer than I, other goalie people, like other goalie coaches around the national hockey league, they felt at times like, and, and this happens, um, can't remember Justin Goldman from the goalie guild. I want to give him credit for the term. I think he calls it mirroring. Uh, you can just, you can just, you play along. You watch a guy every night when, when you're the backup, you watch him every day in practice. He's got two Stanley cups. It's like osmosis. There are elements of your playing partner's game that can creep into yours. And I had a lot of other goalie people that, that I think are smart goalie people tell me, you know, they felt like he started playing a little bit too much like Jonathan quick at times. Um, and, and sort of sliding and moving all over the place rather than having that patience of waiting for the game to come to him. Uh, again, I, I haven't watched him closely enough to, to make that statement myself, but these are people I trust that sort of felt they saw that creeping into his game. I believe in the skill set, uh, that patience on the skates, his skating is exceptional, his edge control is exceptional. When he's on, his patience is exceptional. Uh, he's not a big goalie. He's not a blocking goalie. He's, a re- he's got a good reactive base. Uh, his technical foundation, I thought, was, you know, there's a little extra movement. You could tidy that up a little bit. I still think there's a goalie there. I don't think I don't think you lose it all. I just think it might need, a, like you said, a new voice and some new direction. Just maybe tighten some things, put the focus on some of the strengths, and maybe – you know, again, get get rid of a little bit of that 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 extra movement that that we saw. 
out of both him and Jonathan Quick, I think early this season with the Kings. Be who you are as a goalie. Don't try to be the other guy. Well, and it's, I don't even know that it's intentional, but man, like yeah. you watch, you watch a guy every night, and some of those elements creep in for sure. Yeah, thank God I never played on a team with Henrik Lundqvist. I'd be like, oh, I can just sit back on the goal line. <laughs> I would get shredded. <laughs> Think of all the goaltending I've watched and, and doesn't help me. So I don't think it matters. I like if I could probably like, I wish osmosis worked for me. <laughs> he, by the way, he is excellent as an analyst to have another high level goaltender that's able to articulate really well and break it down on a national broadcast on TNT is fantastic. Yeah. And he's got the goalies backs too. There's been a couple of times he where does. like, and there's some kinds where the other ones that just kind of, I can't remember the exact situation where it kind of got dismissed. I'm like, no, hold on. He just explained the whole thing to you. Don't tell me that that's a, sh- a save that, you yep. know, oh, he's got to have that. No, he just explained exactly why that went in. And I, I think he's excellent. I'm not surprised by it. He's just, and like it, folks, if you, I know this is a Flyers podcast, um, but you know, if you, if, if you appreciated how good he was, even if it was against your team for all those years, I highly recommend going back and, and again, shameless plug. We had Henrik on uh, after his retirement for an entire hour on the InGoal Radio podcast, he awesome. and he yeah. was exceptional. That and you're seeing that on the TNT stage. You just he's a at, at, again at the at the root levels. I think the best are always goalie geeks. They don't always yeah. maintain it to the, to the certain degree, and some guys aren't. Connor Hellebuck doesn't like he doesn't want to talk about goaltending all the time. He needs his escape from it. But a lot of these guys, I think Carter's a goalie geek. And there mm-hmm. were times where no stone unturned, always looking for new things. Maybe that there was too much of that, too many voices, too many ideas. Um, you, as you mature, you sort of narrow what your foundation is rather than always looking for new ideas. But the guys that see it at that level, that understand it, that can break it down at that level, that look for new things and understand what works for them and what doesn't, like to me, they're the ones that, that end up with the long careers. And, and when you listen to Lundqvist break the game down now and you listen to the way he broke down his own game and his own career on our podcast, it's no surprise that he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. At least no, he no is doubt. in my eyes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, Carter's a total when first preseason game. He's like, oh, dude, I saw him in the hallway after the game. And he's like, look at the glove. The new Brian's glove. It's got a snap in there for the the, the wrist uh, to anchor the wrist and show me all this new stuff. Like he's totally because he knows I'm totally into it, too. But. Um, and Lund- as far as Lundquist goes, I'm so annoyed by the guy. He's just so handsome, perfect. He's must got has like really ugly and smelly feet or something. Something's got to be wrong with him. I know. I think I think he's just the perfect human. Damn him. And he's a twin. Um, Woody, this was exceptional. I thank you so much. Best of luck out there uh, for the remainder of the cup final and then the off season and everything. Good luck with your skate today, man. Yeah, I know. I mean, they got to play against guys who are half my age and twice my skill level. So chances are there's going to be a lot of goals going in today, but I'm going to have fun doing it. Hopefully it came across in this conversation how much I love this position and playing it and talking about it. I always enjoy talking with you, Jason, because I I know you share the passion. And uh, anytime we get to anytime we get to geek out, I I didn't even keep track of time here, but it was felt like it felt like a couple of minutes. I'm looking down and it was a long time. I love it. Anytime, buddy. Happy to do it. All right, check out Kevin's stuff, ingolmagazine.com, ingolmag on Twitter, at ingolmag, at Kevin is ingol. Great stuff there. Check out the pro reads and much more. That is episode 69 of Stick to Hockey Live. Everybody, thanks for listening and watching. Have a great weekend.